The Fake Show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Sometimes I just can't believe my good fortune when it comes to the people that I have gotten to interview over the years, and Carol Kay is certainly right at the top of that list. She is the legendary bass player who kind of blazed a trail as the only female in a group of elite West Coast studio musicians who played on what would become the most influential records in pop, rock, and soul history from the 1950s to the 1970s. She and invented bass lines that gave performers hit songs from Sinatra, Sonny and Cher, Glenn Campbell, Simon and Garfunkel, The Beach Boys, as well as TV and film hits like Mission Impossible, Batman, Hawaii Five-0, and The Thomas Crown Affair. But Carol's story really started long before moving into the studio full-time. Here we discuss the earliest days before working with favorites like Quincy Jones and Brian Wilson. Have you been doing with the shelter-in-place deal? You know, I, I'm an old lady. I've been around the, the horn a few times. <laughs> yeah. This does not scare me at all, but it scares me to see how many do get scared. You, you know, you, so yeah, it, it's people who are very ill... Uh, that very exposed to, to that, I think. You know. I know that you live now, you're out right outside of uh, San Diego. Where did you grow up? Well, I, I grew up in a housing project in, in Wilmington, California, right, right, right on the port area there, because my, my dad brought us down here from Everett, Washington, when when, when, uh, when Pearl Harbor struck, see? So my, my dad packed us in the car, and we drove down to, to California, and uh, he went to work in the shipyard. My, my parents had me late in life. I mean, I, I wasn't even supposed to be born, you know, because it was so, so late in their life. But anyway, but, but they had, had a third kid, you know, and so uh, and, and so my, my parents couldn't get along at all. He, he, he was older, and he couldn't play anymore, and he uh, was, was about to lose his job in the shipyards because the war was ending, and so he, he was... T- terrible to my mom. I said, well, get rid of him. You know, make him get out of the house. <laughs> she did, and then we, 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 we struggled then, you know. Your parents were both musicians? Yes. Uh-huh. When did it get to the point where you picked up the guitar? How did that come to you the first time? Well, uh, this Living in the housing project, I, I've worked since since I was nine years old. Uh, I've worked scrubbing floors. I cleaned apartments. You know, we were very poor. You know, we were just t- trying to put food on the table, actually. Yeah. My dad was out of state and didn't pay anything, you know. So uh, there we were, you know, less than nothing. And so my, my, my mom had saved up some pennies. She, I mean, she had saved up about $10, and then a steel guitar salesman came around with a steel guitar and some lessons, and so she opted for that for me, for I mean, for, for 10 bucks. And then I started to work after school for a guitar teacher who, who I didn't know at the time was, was the very best. I, I used to take the bus into Long Beach, you know, which was nearby, and, and so uh, he trained me how to write music and writing down the music from the from the Goodman era and Artie Shaw and all that stuff, you know. And then he he started to teach me guitar, and in about four or five months, I mean, I was good enough to go out and play gigs at the age of fourteen. I mean, I only worked for him for about six months, and then at the end of that six months, and I was 
able to go go out and play, and, and I still help them teach, you know, so I've, I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> How incredible is it that you would end up with that guy as your mentor? Because you could have gone to someone who really didn't know what they were doing. Well, you know, if you read my book, he, he, he is the father of my first child, too, so it, it, it didn't end well. Okay. Uh, but... Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he happened to be the, the finest on, on the West Coast and had trained just about everybody else, you know, Howard Roberts and, and, and all those people. He, he trained them, you know. And, and then I met Arnie Kessel through him, and, and, and I met Len wow. Hall through him and, and like yeah. that. So, I mean, so to me, a little poor kid, kid from the bad part of town, uh, I mean, it was really something you know so yeah not everybody takes to an instrument though like like you did it it almost seems like in some cases it's a gift but i i don't know if it was kind of a combination of things with you you know jim you're you're in a music town i mean las vegas is a music town we we heard music on a day and night back then everybody traded in their computers and i mean an iphone on a musical instrument. That's how popular that that good music was back in the late 40s and the 50s, you know, all all during that period. You heard music day and night, you know, so your ears just grew, you know, and then and then you take some lessons with a a teacher who, who teaches you the chord notes that you need to to learn, you know, not not note scales, you know, note scales is for classical music, you know, but but the chord notes, the actual notes that 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 you're going to form your your your, your solos from, and learn how to chord write and learn how chords move in tunes, you know, then then the rock and roll kit came along and and just simplified everything. It was three chords, see, <laughs> not not a thousand chords to learn, you know. That yeah. Thing. But anyway, but by that time I was a bebop. Jazz player. I had played in the big band, and I had had two two kids, you know, to take care of, and my mom to take care of, and 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 so I worked daytime jobs. But then I accidentally got in the studio work. Play, I mean, playing guitar in the background of Sam Cooke and Richie Valens and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it paid a lot of money, you know. So I went went for it because you know it's a, a family to take care of, and that's how we all did it. Most of those rock records have jazz players in inventing the lines and, and playing on that stuff. I mean, you, you hardly had a rock player on those rock records. How did you transition, though, from being on the road playing this big band music? And, and who was the person who kind of got you that first gig in the studio? And were you initially a little bit maybe not uh, wanting to do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did not want to play rock and roll. You know, what? When when you're a fine bebop player, you're playing. Right. You don't want to go boom 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 boom. You know, from that to that, no way. But the money was good, and and the players were were from the jazz world anyway. So we'd kind of wink at each other and and do it, you know. And and the music wasn't so bad, and it was Bump Blackwell, whose band Quincy Jones and Ray Charles got got their start in, who, who, who had had some hits out on Ray, uh, on, on, on others, you know, like Little Richard and, and, and people like that. And I met Sam Cooke. Uh, I, I played 
on his second or third hit, not, not his first hit, but he asked me to do a record date with, when he heard me play some jazz with, with the um, Teddy Edwards group, you know, like Billy Higgins, the drummer in it. That, that's how great the musicians were back then, you know. And so he asked me to play guitar because he, it turned out that, that he had a fight with, I mean, with one of the guitar players and he needed somebody to play fills. Well, there, I mean, there I was playing solos and everything, and, and he loved the way I played. I didn't know it at the time, but but he was a very fine jazz vibe player, too, you know. So he hired me to do dates, and I got paid more on that first date than I ever made in, in the daytime as a tech typist, you know, uh, for right. a week. So the money was there, and I thought, well, you know something? I've got two kids and a mom to take care of. I'm, I'm going to go for it. And it was pleasant. By the way, Carol, I'll, I'll bet you were a really fast typist. Yes, I was. <laughs> I, you know, when, 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 you're, when your kids are, are dependent upon you, you're going to do your job well. Right. And I did. Right. I, I worked days, and then I played nights. You know, had, had they known that I'm playing with some of the guys that were smoking pot, doing drugs in the back <laughs> right. room, right. not had me typing the missile manual be, being cleared with a black button, I mean, for top secrecy. <laughs> but you know what? I, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. I saw all that. I'm not going to do something that I know is going to kill somebody standing next to me. I used to have to play bills to fill in where I knew that the drugs had kicked in and he couldn't do his uh, soloing right. So I'm just saying that it's all by ear. If you grow up with music, you're going to play music. I'm talking not, about real music. Not to take a right turn here, but you have played with enough of these guys in the jazz clubs. Black jazz musicians, they... they yeah, and if there was drug use, if there was pot and and other things that were a lot okay, not 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 all but i have seen the do the the, the uh, they did what, what is called hash it's a it's a form of drug that that they have a little i don't know that it's it's, it's it's something with bubbles. I don't know. I sat out in the front <laughs> while they did their thing in the back room. I was... My point being that, and I've heard musicians say this before, that it was their way of dealing with the racism of the day that was going on. They needed to you chill out from that. You're absolutely right about that. They were real men when when they could play jazz and and, and were admired for it. See, and and I, I thought about this later on because I thought, well, why, why was it so easy for me? It was easy because I wasn't prejudiced. I used to go as a little kid. I used to go take the PE cars since I'm making the money in the household. My mom couldn't do me anything. Couldn't tell me anything. I'd take <laughs> PE right. from Wilmington to Los Angeles to hear the Duke Ellington band. I'd be the only little white white kid sitting in the front row there. I wow. love the music. Yeah. Just, I, I felt the music, you know, and I think playing with me and me, me playing with them, they, they, I mean, they knew that I could play, you know, because the crowd told me they, 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 they loved it. Here, here, little white girl, pretty white girl with blonde hair and everything, and I carried that guitar in and I played it like a sax or something, you know. But I'm not the only one to do that. There, there were a lot of women throughout the years, white and black that could play some, some just as good as the men you know so it was easy for me plus i felt that that these men are playing because they're being accepted as men this way you know and, and i didn't know right that. i didn't think about it i just felt it i just felt it you know and they were good people and, and i knew not to date them because you just didn't date anybody like that at that time you know that it was uh 
you, I mean, you knew about the prejudice. You know, you, they, they lived in the south part of L.A. where they had the finest clubs, and I lived in the north part of L.A., you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, but I was safe down there, and people dressed up in suits, you know. They were all working. I mean, everybody was working in the aircraft industry, you know. they, they I mean, they were building those jet airplanes and everything, and, and the missiles and all that, that stuff, you know. And so there was money down there. You didn't see the drugs or the fear of, of crime, you know, like you do now. You know, it, it, it all changed later on. So the clubs were a great situation for you and a great place to go. But at, at the same time, when you started to get those studio gigs, were the jazz clubs kind of starting to fall by the wayside? Where Was their time kind of coming to an end? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right about one by one. And I'm talking about about a hundred or so clubs in Los Angeles, which is all, all spread out. You had to have a car to go anywhere in, in L.A., you know. So you, you went from this club to that club and you drove, you know. But one by one, the rock and roll started to happen, and, you know, and then uh, they were closing down one club, and then th- th- they'd reopen it as a as a rock club or something, or um, I mean, or a comedy club. I mean, there's some some of those that are still there that 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 were fine jazz uh, clubs, big, big clubs. They were big clubs, and we all worked in in those clubs. You I mean, you didn't make a lot of money, but the finest, you know, like Hamp, Hamp and Haas and, and, and all those people did not make much more than you did, you know. But everybody loved the music. The feeling was love everywhere, you know. We all played, and, and it was fun. And, and then the studio work at first was fun, too, because you had people who loved the music. I mean, like Bumps Blackwell and, and others. Team Records was where they had Herb Albert and Lou Adler. Sonny Bono worked there. as a Sonny was a messenger guy, you know, there. Right. Right? So they, they all learned from Bumps, you know. And and it was a hubbub of activity, you know. You you had the groups that that went through there too, you know. And and we all played music for the groups, and mostly jazz players. See, Carol, when you first went into the studio, you were playing guitar at that point, and not bass. Guitar for many years, for about six years, five five and a half years, you know. Yeah, yeah, did a lot of hits on there, and then. When I got married again, I tried very much to please the, the second husband, and um, I had the two kids and the husband, and he did not want me to work with the black men. He he did not like that, so I had to cut. I, I would have to say no a lot of the time. But I'm the one that brought the most money in the household, you know, because I had the two kids, and it was important that I took care of my my own responsibilities with the kids. But but I mean, but eventually, uh, after I had a third child, then then uh, it's about that same year that I accidentally got placed on bass when, when the bass player didn't show up, and so I started playing bass. I thought, you know what, I, I don't like to play rock on guitar anymore. The, the, the 12-string guitar and banjo, and I was playing all those instruments, and, I, and, and I'm getting tired of it. And as soon as I played bass, I felt the power on the bottom, and then and then they loved what. What I'd invent on the line, I started inventing lines all over the place, and they loved that, you know, because I had a blast then playing bass, you know, and it was fun. But it was the right time, right instrument at the right time, you know, and so I started to invent lines, and that's what happened, you know. It takes a, it takes a little bit of strength, though, doesn't it, to play the bass? I mean, I don't know, I don't care who you are. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it takes the technique of feeling the instrument, too, because the instrument's not built for your body. Uh, you have to twist your t- 
torso to play it and, and keep your left arm way out and stuff like that. So you do a lot of different things with, with your technique. Change your technique to, to agree to the instrument so that you can last for hours in the studio. I used to, it wasn't a boom be boom thing. It was bum ba boo do boo ba boo ba do do boo ba boo ba do 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 You know, you're playing a lot of notes. So you have to be able to do it. They wanted me to play with the pick, of course, because it, it started that way with about three other players. They started playing with the pick on flat wound strings, and so I did the same thing. But the line that I, I came up with created mostly a framework around the singer and the style of music and w whatever the rest of the band was playing. Now, you have to understand, uh, at the time that I started playing bass, they were using three bass players to get one bass sound. They were using a str string bass, upright, and the Fender bass, and the Dano, I mean, six-string guitar for that clicky sound. Well, I accidentally got all those sounds on one bass, you know, so right. they, they, they could just hire me and sit. sit. <laughs> Plus, I, I was a good pro, you know, I was there on time, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't do, do drugs or anything like that, you know, so... So I was there on time, they could trust me, and then I'd, I'd come up with some, some good bass lines, the, answer, the statement answer lines, you know, to create in back of every style song that there was. I think it was you who said that uh, your good friend drummer Earl Palmer liked, oh, Earl he Earl liked, Palmer. He liked your playing so much, but he said, be careful not to, not to rush as we go in the studio here with your timing. <laughs> we would catch each other all the time. You know, he'd say something to me, and I'd say, well, fuck you. Or something. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd, I'd get back. But I loved Earl from the very moment I played with him in 1957 when I did my first guitar date. We, we got in sync immediately, and we became fast friends. You know, I didn't know much about him. You know, he's a nice fella, and he could really play with a great group. I loved him. Then I played with, with some other drummers whose time were, wasn't that good. You know, you, you learn to appreciate somebody who, who can groove from beat one. You don't have to worry about the time. Then you're not fighting somebody to keep the time going. Because without great time, you don't have a groove. You know, and without a groove, you don't have a hit record. Without a hit record, you're not going to be able to pay the bills, see? So we, we all worked hard to, to make sure that, that the recordings were great. And, and Earl was not only a great guy, but, but the number one, one drummer from New Orleans who, who, who could bring those kind of beats to the records, you know, and, and was, he was great. He was a good person, too. But how was it that you would end up playing for Phil Spector, and what was that experience like? Phil was a young guy. You you, you knew he, he was pretty young, and he and he had, had some good ideas. I met him when I did a a jazz uh, uh, show at a prison. Isn't that funny? You know, I did it at, at the prison because he, he he and his little group was playing uh, some rock hit or something that he had cut, and we we, we come okay. in as a jazz band, and he comes up 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 and introduces himself. They said. Do you do studio work? I said, oh, yeah. You know, I had been doing studio work about two or three years by that time on guitar. He, he, he loved my guitar sound and all that stuff. So he hired me, 
and he was all, all right. I mean, I liked his mother more than him, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because she was very, very nice, you know. But he, he, he was always nice to me and nice to my kids. I, I bring my kids on his date too, because by that time I, I was getting a divorce, and I wanted my kids to know that I have to work a lot now. This is what I do, so I take him to to the record date. He was very kind to my children, you know. I like him for that. Oh, that's definitely a, a plus right there. Well, so you played on what the Righteous Brothers, you've lost that love and feeling? Yeah, I just played chords. Uh, but but again, like I say, if the beat isn't happening, and so, sometimes he used to dump the echo in our earphones, and we, we, we didn't have the we, we didn't have any way to control it in, in the earphones. So he'd dump a lot of echo in there. And, and I'm looking at Earl, and Earl's saying, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we pulled the ear- earphones off of one ear. But anyway, on a slow tune like that, there's a tendency to drag a little bit. So I'm, I'm trying to chuck a chuck a chuck a chuck on the guitar to hold the beat going. And then in, in the bridge, I, I joined with the bass player to go bump, 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 bump. bump, bump. And I said, like, here it is, Ray, come on. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> Try to keep the the beat up and it seemed to work you know whatever I did on guitar he fed into the to, to the earphones and it seemed to help you know so so it, it, it was that that kind of thing you know so you invent your all, all kinds of rhythms and lines and stuff on guitar uh, and I did a lot of 12 string work I mean the 12 string that you hear in the study and, and the share things that, that that's being and then that was my bass line on that so that I, I figured out for the uh, the beat goes on because here's Sonny and couldn't sing and he knew it too he he just he, he, he <laughs> yeah. kid about it you know we, we kid him too you know and he was nice to work for you know except he he, he wanted us to create a hit on the one chord tune I mean, called the beat goes on, and the bass line was going boom de boom, mm-hmm. and I'm playing the demo, and uh, Bob West w- was on the Fender bass on that, and we we were playing that line together. Now Bob was a very fine jazz bass player from from the same scene, and that's Frankie Cap on drums, by the way, very fine jazz drummer on that hit record. It wasn't Hal Blaine. It was. Frankie mm-hmm. Cap on that. And so we were going boom de boom and he's singing uh, and the beat goes on and the beat goes on. Da, 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 as nothing happening. So about the third line I came up with we all started to invent lines but the third line I came up with was that bum 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 ba ba do. All of yeah. two came alive. I said, Oh man, look at that. I'm not <laughs> bragging about it, see. I'm, I'm just wondering, wow, that that was amazing to hear. One little piece of music makes such a dumb tune happen. But it's, <laughs> it's a great bass line, by the oh, way. Yeah, and, I was and, amazed, you know. And, to go back to Spectre for a moment, because I always loved Ike and Tina's River Deep Mountain High. I mean, I really thought that was a masterpiece. And again, a great, yeah, and a great bass line. For some reason, it didn't catch on with the uh, the general public, but and it also seemed to be kind of the end of uh, Phil's run, didn't it? Yes, it did. He, he he changed after that. It just killed him that that it w- w- was not a number one. It was a, a number one in the UK. The people in the UK have loved it, but not yeah. not the people here. I think it was the end of that sound of the of the echo. P- people get tired of certain sounds all the time, and it was just it, it had a good run. 
And uh, but you know, when we did that date at Gold Star, uh, there were a ton of people in the booth. It started to feel like a party. You don't do a hit record if there's a party there. It, uh, doing a hit record is always a business. You go yeah. in, you don't think of anything. You don't want the people around. They didn't even have the songwriters in the booth at all because they would get ideas and they tell the themselves, well, well, they should do this on my song and all that stuff, you know. So they didn't have songwriters in the booth. But they had everybody in the booth at that thing, and I started to get a funny feeling about it. So this is not right. But anyway, we, we, we got a good groove on it, and that's Earl Palmer on drums again. And, and, and the bass line was written. I don't think I added anything to it, you know. So uh, Gene Page did the uh, arrangement on that. You know, now Gene Page that later did a lot of the Motown hits that we played on, too, out here. Carol, what was the first Beach Boys album you worked on with Brian Wilson? I, I think it was all summer long, but I'm not sure about that. Boy, you know, I don't know. Um, when you do dates, you do songs. You even care what happens to the songs afterwards. <laughs> right. You walk out the door, you forget it immediately because you, you have to run to the next date of the day with a, another group of songs that you have to invent on. So you, you, you just do the track. Now, Brian would, would do one song per three-hour date, see? It's very boring for the most part, you know. But he always used the two basses. He used the string bass and me on the fender. He, he'd keep the fender up so much that sometimes Lyle Ritz would say, I'm playing the notes, but I don't hear myself on the back. <laughs> It's terrible, but it, it, he was there. It, 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 you know, he, he loved to work with two, two basses. And he wrote the music. He'd bring it in. The stems would be on the wrong side of the notes. You know, you could tell that he had no training <laughs> and, and, and how to write music. But his parts were there, and he wrote all the bass lines. He'd come in. He'd, he'd pass out. Brian would pass out the music. He'd, he'd sit down at the piano and play the tune to, to give us a feel for it. And then he'd, he'd go in the booth, and the rest was done from there. See, it's, you know, I don't know which ones are played on. No, I am. It makes sense. It's almost like a disposable business. But I just know that when I was a kid, and, and my older siblings had. Beach Boys albums, and I would listen to a song like "Girl, Don't Tell Me," and I could I could tell then how much more sophisticated that song was than the stuff they had done before that. Before they used, you know, all of you. He grew with every record date. The first stuff was "Go Little Honda," you know, that kind of stuff. Ba 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 brand, you know, da da da, you know, that simple stuff. But his musical aptitude, I think it's his ears that just grew. because he, he, He'd hear us jam sometimes. We, we, we'd get a quick jazz jam going. He, he loved that. He, he loved to listen to us play. But we, we were just trying to play just for, for a, a minute or two while he's trying to figure out what to do in the booth. you know. But I think being around us, we accepted him because the kid had some talent. You know, he, he wrote the music, brought the parts in, and he had some sounds that, that were amazing, you know. So he, he, he said he loved jazz. He, he listened to jazz sometimes, and he uh, was was into that singing group. Uh, oh, I can't 
think of the name of them now. Uh, the, the Four Freshmen, I think he the liked. The Four Freshmen. He loved the way that they sung, and, and, and he was into the four-part harmony. Rock and roll was, was mostly three-part sounds, but he, he heard the chords. He heard the major sevens. He heard the ninths. He heard the thirteenths. And the, the choice of notes that he would write for the bass, I even uh, heard one track uh, a few years ago when I listened to some of that stuff. There was one track, he had me playing a major seventh on the bottom. Now, who writes that? You know, a P to, to the do of the chord. When you stepped in the studio for those Pet Sounds sessions, did you get the feeling that it was a game changer, or was just, or was this just another thing for you guys? Yeah, I mean, it was just a, another thing for us, but after a while, it got to be that to, to work for him was a pleasure, and, and we knew that he, he was creating a hit with everything. So the, the top days were either to work for the Beach Boys thing or, or for Quincy Jones, you were going to hear some, some great music, you know, so that that was the way that we felt after a while, because he kept, with every date, he got better and better and better, and pretty soon he was um, writing some sound that we, we, we just couldn't believe. Here's this kid that didn't know how to write music well, writing some sounds that were out of this world, you know. And I know that everyone talks about songs like God Only Knows or Wouldn't It Be Nice or Caroline No, but the two instrumentals on Pet Sounds, which were Let's Go Away for a While and the, mm-hmm. title, the title track Pet Sounds, were just extraordinary to me. I mean, and I know that there are songs that I think Brian has said that Let's Go Away for a While was one of the most satisfying things he ever put together. Oh. Well, well, I didn't know that, but yeah, it, 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 it makes sense, you know, he was writing what he heard, and I think with, with his, his vocals, too, I think he was in touch with the feeling of the kids that, that were growing up in the 60s. Remember, that those were some tough times. You had the racial things going on, you had the war going on, you, I mean, you yeah. had the assassinations going on, you had some pretty weird stuff going on in the 60s, and, and to grow up in that fall in love and try to date and go to school and try to make some sense of it all. He made sense of it all with his music and, and, and the way that he, he had the lyrics going and the sounds and everything. And, 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 and he brought it together in such a way that I think it was like the music of the 60s back then, you know. So he, he, he inspired a, a lot of people, and he inspired us. We, we, we liked him. We, we loved to work for him, even though it was a song, a, a date, you know, it was a long time on one tune during the time that we were doing three or four or five tunes per three-hour date, but he only did one song. But it was so special, the way that he had written the music, and, and he himself was special. He, he was funny, you know, he'd, he'd crack up at his old talk, and stuff like <laughs> we were in the booth one time and he he played us a track of just him singing uh, all, all the part and and it was no, no band or anything and we listened to this Barney Castle <laughs> you have to watch him because he'll say anything and he's and he turned around at the end he said he looked at Brian he said Brian I take back everything I ever thought about you <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen the look on Brian's face <laughs> to think about that did you see any of the the pushback that the band because the band was on the road when Brian had put this together and when they got back and started recording the vocals for it were you there 
because I know that they weren't exactly happy with it, not being hot rod stuff and, and you know, surfing songs. and. Well, no, being unhappy with that. We always knew that when they'd come in and they, they would come in to listen to the track of when, when they were in town, that they'd come in and listen to the track that, that Brian did. You know, they'd listen to for a few minutes and they'd crack a few jokes and then they were gone you know we thought yeah i mean they'd gone to the bank to to, to count their money (laughs) yeah (laughs) they they loved it they seemed to love it i mean we never heard any uh uh how how blaine likes to say a few things like like he was in charge of this or he knew this no no you know he 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 exaggerated a little bit he used to like to say well uh the father came in and had a fight with we never saw the fight his father would come in and visit the dates he was fine but yeah i heard later on about the overdub vocal date when when he had a fight with his father because his father came in drunk you know ptsd from world war ii anyway just about most of those guys who fought in that war did you know that's why you see bars that were built in the homes in the 50s because (laughs) people drank you know they, they they drank like fish back then. I, I'm not naming excuses for him because he did hurt the kids. He he beat Brian. You know, my parents beat me, but I don't know of anybody that didn't grow up that weren't beaten back in the 30s, and the 40s. You know, that, that was the yeah. way that life was back then. So I'm just saying that's the way it was, but we never saw what, what Hal Blaine talked about, about the gold wreck, trying to give away its gold record. Never, never saw that at all. You know, his, his, his father was very nice. In fact, his father was so nice that we worked for him, too, you know. Interesting. So, Carol, I, you know, we've all heard the stories of bands like the Monkees who wanted to play their own instruments in the studio, and were you aware of that pushback? I mean, you, you, you named the group... If us that did the records for them. I know this, that the Birds' Roger McGuinn could play a pretty good guitar, and so he would be part of it. Studio guy still did his stuff so far. Uh, the rest of the group, if there's any groups of the 60s, we're it. We're them. And, and it wasn't just a certain set. Of, it was never a band. It was hundreds of studio musicians that, that they'd hired one by one. To, to be that quote band see the, the the people that grew up in the 60s think of uh, musicians as a band because that's what the music uh, magazines called it they they adver- they would advertise the rock band you know playing on the stage there they had no idea about the studio musicians there's always been uh, been us playing in the background since, since the 1920s in, in movies and, and the record dates and stuff like that, but they just never heard of us, see? So so they get the wrong impression about band. As a studio musician, you're not a band. <laughs> they, they hire you to play on this date and that date. You mix with everybody, see? Yeah, I guess that's uh, part of the reason you'd see these a lot of these bands lip-syncing their material on Ed Sullivan or Hullabaloo or... Oh, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. When the Nilly the Nilly thing happened, we thought, okay, well, they're going to find out about us now, but they never did. <laughs> right up. See, the PR in those days was talking about the band so that the band could get out there on the stage and get hired. To, to, to If they were on the stage, they sold a lot of, of records, too, that way, see? They, they're not going to go on the stage and say, oh, sorry, but we didn't play 
on our own records. We, we didn't do our own records. They're not going to say that. No. You know, so it, it, it was a hush-hush type of thing, you know, to have us do their dates for them. We were glad because the money was coming in and the music wasn't too bad. But by the end of the 60s, it got bad. It got kind of dumb, really dumb. And, and, and they weren't using the horns anymore. They, they would hire the, the, I mean, the rhythm section to come in, create a basic track, and then they would get ideas from us, and then they'd write it for the strings or the horns if they'd overdub later. So it was the start of the end of the 60s. And what did you do then when you transitioned out of that uh, studio life? About 69, it was getting so bad, and the guys were cutting up that they were kidding about their Cadillacs and their rings, and they were saying, oh, on, on, on my diamond ring, I see on Channel 4, there's a typhoon in China. You know, they, <laughs> they're talking about the Cadillacs and stuff. It wasn't about music anymore. Uh, it, it was about the money, and and the, the suits started to happen. That there were people not not like Bumps Blackwell or Lester Sill or these these kind of, Lee, Lee Hazelwood and these these kind of producers. Not yeah. like Herb Alpert and these guys that, that that really loved the music. They had the suits coming in to to run the record companies, and it was only about the bean counting. It was just about the money, you know. And and about that time, the guys were kidding, and I couldn't stand to be around them too. Some of, but by that time, so sixty nine seventy, I started quitting, and I came back to do more because I loved the film work. You know, the I loved working for uh, uh, for I mean for Lalo and and uh, all, all, all the film people you know the film music was great whether it was a movie or or the t- tv show and i had been doing them i mean since mission impossible the middle of the 60s i cut that you know and and it was fun music you know it was great music so i came back and did that but i had my books written my books were selling hot worldwide uh they were in all the schools and and then i, I was doing seminars i was doing some and then I did the, the, the concerts with Joe Pass there for a while, and then with Hanson yeah. Haas, and that was fun. That was playing jazz again, you know, a, a form of jazz. It wasn't the bebop, but, but it was good jazz. It was good music. I had fun with that for a while. And I got married and then again, and then I got crippled up for a long time, so I couldn't play there for a few years. But, but you know, I, I had some surgery, and I, I was back playing in, in the 90s, you know. Is your autobiography still available? Is that possible to pick that up somewhere? Yes, it is. It's on my website. It's 502 pages, but it, it has my work long, and it talks about all this stuff and, and, and the business part of it, too, because that's very, very interesting what happened later on, you know. So anyway, yes, it is. Uh, Carol? CarolK.com, you've got to put the www, then CarolK is spelled C-A-R-O-L-K-A-Y-E. The E's on K, not Carol. Are you fully retired? Are you still teaching? What are you doing right now? Oh, I still teach. I still, and interestingly enough, I've always been trying to get back to jazz playing, you know, and I went back to play some jazz after I had my surgery. I felt pretty good, you know. And I and I played and I taught jazz and interestingly now people don't want to learn rock and roll they want to learn jazz <laughs> you know so the, <laughs> the, the, the former rockers are learning jazz and yes they can learn jazz because I teach it the way that we always taught it in the fifties the way that we invented our lines with and that's playing the patterns and it's from chordal tones you know so anyway and it's fun to, to see them learn I, I love to pass it along. 
that that's what you do when you get older. You try to pass along whatever you learn, because the the feeling of music is what we need right now. My God, oh, you boy. fear out there, and the only thing to pull us back will be music. You know, because you can't lie through music. You you know, you start playing music, you, and, and you find yourself through it too. You know, and you and, and you play with others, and you start having fun then. See, so that's a that, that, that's what we really need now. Carol, all, all I have to say is thank you so much for the joy that you've given us over the years. Thank uh, you, Jim, for your questions. I love your questions because you get it. You, you know what it was like for the, the studio musicians, and you, you know it. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Well, I've interviewed enough rock stars over the years who keep telling me, no, we played that stuff, <laughs> and, I know, oh, and I, I know damn well they didn't. They didn't. So I've listened to your music almost every day, and I, and I feel uh, so much the better for it. It was just an honor talking to you. Well, thank you, but, but, but the guys, the guys were great to work with, too. I, I have to give it to them. It was always a pleasure to, to work with them. Okay. You, stay, you. you stay well. It was, it was nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You know, many times when you get a chance to talk to your idols, they don't live up to your expectations. But Carol was so gracious. I just love her even more now. You know, we've all heard those stories of the competition between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. One band trying to top the other. The Beatles came up with Rubber Soul. And then Brian Wilson created pet sounds and when the Beatles heard that they took their creativity to a new level giving us all Sgt. Pepper. At the time McCartney said of pet sounds I love the orchestra and the arrangements and Brian Wilson's inventive bass lines. Paul didn't realize until years later that that was the craftsmanship of Carol Kay. Sting once said in an interview that he learned how to play the bass from one of Carol Kay's instructional books. I do hope that you enjoyed this interview with the legendary Carol Kay as much as I did. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you back here next time. Take the fake show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.